0: Welcome to Between the Covers, the show for readers and writers and lovers of books. I'm Stephanie and I'm a publisher at Red Penguin Books, where we publish books of all types and genres. So whether you have a manuscript all ready to go, a book still stuck in your head, or even 300 pieces of loose leaf shoved into a drawer, visit us at redpenguinbooks.com and unleash your inner author. And yes, I see Steve laughing up there. At least once a month, I do get a huge envelope filled with hundreds and hundreds of sheets of loose leaf. It happens all the time. So I promise
1: I'll stop doing that.
0: (laughs) (laughs) My assistant really hopes that's true. (laughs) Well, our first guest today, um, Steve Rieger, is the author of The Stormfront, which is the book one of the Stormstrung Trilogy. And our author writes, the year is 1618, and the Christian world stands once again on a knife's edge. The once great Holy Roman Empire, like most of the rest of Europe, is divided along religious, political, and economic lines, pitting Catholics against Protestants, princes against monarchs, and the rich against the poor and a war unlike anything Europe has ever seen is growing increasingly inevitable. Destined to be caught up in the coming conflict are two very beautiful, but very different women. Lacey Atlantis' Vanessa Von Stormstrong is the only child of a wealthy Catholic Archduke, while poor Sarah Latova is a Protestant thief who knows practically nothing of her past. These two strangers share a strong faith in the same God, but their respective attempts to find peace in a world dominated by violent and powerful men will lead them straight into the abyss of a war that will tear Europe apart for the next 30 years.
1: Ooh, author the
0: when you read that. Oh, I'm glad. <laughs> <laughs> Please welcome, author Steve Rieger. So glad to have you.
1: My pleasure. Thanks for having me.
0: I love reading those. And, you know, years ago, I realized that the audience didn't necessarily know what your book was about. We'd jump right in, I'd say to an author, tell me about your book, and they'd say, oh, yeah, I wrote it for about five years, and nobody would have a clue. And I said, you know what? They slave over those descriptions. I'm giving it the whole, you know. No, you
1: did a great job. It was like the movie trailer voice, like, in a world. In which, you
0: know, <laughs> that's, the, oh, that's the goal. Well, I mean, by the time I get to the end of it, everyone's like, oh, my gosh, I want to hear about this. This is amazing stuff. So now you can tell me how long it took and what inspired it and all that other good stuff?
1: Uh, well, it took um, it took me a little over a year to write. Uh, I recently retired from a 30-year teaching career and had had always wanted to write and now had the time. Um, the inspiration really came from, I, I had this crazy idea of mixing different literary characters that might not normally come across each other, you know, I thought, well, what would happen if King Arthur met Sherlock Holmes? And the one that I kept coming back to was, what if Robin Hood met Van Helsing, the the, the vampire slayer? And I thought, well, that would be an interesting meet. And then for some reason, both of the characters became strong female lead characters. So the, the Robin Hood character was the genesis for my, my poor bohemian protestant and the van helsing character became from van helsing to van Nessa. and then it went from van helsing to a number of iterations and then it settled on storm song and it it really just kind of took off from there and um it's 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 been a, a blast to, wow. to, to to write these characters I mean they've become a part of my life
0: fantastic were you a history teacher religion teacher I,
1: I was I taught uh, I taught world European American history for 30 years um, I was retired for all of about six months and then came back out of retirement I'm currently teaching American literature at a private school here in Cincinnati and that's that has been wonderful too getting to Teach literature while I'm simultaneously attempting to make my own.
0: Six months retirement lasted a whole six months. Huh? <laughs> That's more
1: than Tom Brady. Uh, I lasted longer than Tom Brady.
0: That's very true. Was it the dog you had to get away? What? <laughs>
1: no, it was the it was the school district that both of my boys attend, and they had a particular need, and they. They begged very well, and uh, I was a sucker. I can't say no, so I said, "Sure, of course, I'll do it." Um, <laughs> and 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 it, it's been it's been a blast. So I'm absolutely thrilled that I made that decision.
0: Oh, I'm thrilled for you. Now this is a whole trilogy. Is it yes. all finished, or we're just up to book one? I don't mean just. Believe me, I know it no, goes no. into a novel. Yeah,
1: but- I am. I am halfway through the sequel right now. Storm Surge. And I hope to have it available to come out sometime this summer. And then I'm going to take a break from the trilogy for a while. There is a uh, science fiction novella that is just percolating up here. And I need to get it on paper before before my head explodes. And then once that is complete, then I want to come back and finish the trilogy. And there's actually a follow-on trilogy that will come after the Storm Song trilogy; it'll be called Storm Song Generations, as they go forward. And then there's even a prequel that I have planned. Um, so I'll I'll be with these characters for the foreseeable future.
0: Wow, uh, three more after this and a prequel—it's like Star Wars.
1: Yeah, it, it, it very <laughs> much is. Yes.
0: Now that means you might have, you know, somewhere between, you know, uh, seven and nine books in your head are you a plotter as they say and you have it no
1: no I I am not in fact there have been many times in the first book and and I'm at one of those crossroads again now where I will reach a point where I don't know what happens next I'm not sure I always knew how each of the first three books would end that there was kind of a dun 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 big reveal at the end of each of the three books so I knew how they would start I knew where the end point was but I had no idea how to get from from A to B. And when I get stumped, um, I go to our local library and I just randomly pick books off the shelf and I will sit there and read for hours if necessary until something clicks and sparks my imagination. Okay, now now I know what happens next. Most often it's the Bible, uh, but it can be fiction, nonfiction, Um, Last summer, I picked up a book that was all about the competition between Nikolai Tesla and Thomas Edison in trying to bring AC versus DC to the market. And that all of a sudden, I'm like, now I know what happens in chapter 46 or or whatever it was. So no, I am definitely not a plotter. I have no idea what's going to happen in in the next chapter. And I probably won't until I sit down and right now I'm reading um, a biography of Lewis and Clark and I'm also reading a book about a Catholic exorcist um, and I'm also reading a couple of fiction novels so at any given point in time I've got three or four things I'm reading and invariably one of them will do that for me.
0: So that's interesting that, that the immediate the, what's happening on the next page or in the next chapter might still yet to be determined yet you know one book in that this is a trilogy that Mm -hmm. there's a trilogy after it and that there is a prequel to come. I'm so glad you said that because, you know, people think that there's a serious, you know, either I know everything, what's on the next page, including the next nine books, or I know nothing. And you're showing that those, those two things are not necessarily at odds with each other.
1: Right. Right. And, and I'm getting a lot of, uh, pressure from my wife who read the first book and is already reading what I've written of the second one and she asks me almost daily who's going to live and who's going to die and (laughs) and I quite honestly I I don't know myself I know some of them but and she's made it very clear that there are certain characters that if they die prematurely that's grounds for divorce so I have to proceed very carefully as I go through the second and third books.
0: Yeah, yeah. So if you're a little mad at her.
1: That's right. That's what I told her. It's, it's like George R. R. Martin. I said, and anytime, you know, you make me mad, I kill a stark.
0: <laughs> well, you know, you mentioned George R. R. Martin, and do you think he's ever gonna finish writing the series?
1: I hope so. I mean, I've been waiting for years. Um, I just finished reading one of the the prequels, Fire and Blood. Um, you know, I, I'm hoping he'll finish them. Before I die, uh, but I, I don't know. He seems to have gone off, and and, and he's I he's very happy. Write- the
0: library like you always yeah, do.
1: exactly. Or or maybe the fact that the HBO series came to an end has kind of stunted his desire to finish it. But uh, I'm still waiting.
0: Yeah, well, I think it must be very disconcerting for him to see that they ended it in a way that either either one of two things is true totally different than what he would have done and that's right. kind of weird or exactly what we would have done but now that he sees that the popular opinion is against that he has to go in a different direction
1: right and 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 if he doesn't go in a different direction will that affect sales because we already know what's going to happen um <laughs> so yeah oh it must be horrible for him the price of fame be Horrible. <laughs> oh, i weep I, I for him
0: <laughs> yeah, it, it is a little hard. I, I I guess I should have said feel sorry for that. Yeah, over- I, I think
1: he's gonna be okay.
0: A little overstatement. So a teacher, you retired and started writing, and then you went back to teaching. So now you're juggling both. You just don't speak. Yes,
1: yes. Um, well, I'm I'm not teaching full time, and that there's a you know, there's a huge difference between teaching full-time where it's all encompassing, and you know, just teaching a, a class or two. Uh, and and it's at the same place that my boys attend, so I can take them in the morning, drop them off, go over to the coffee shop, write for a little bit, go teach class, come back, write for a little bit, and then pick them up. So it's um, it's it, it's worked out very well so far.
0: Fantastic. Tell me a little bit about world building for you because you're really sitting right there on the edge of yes research and fiction. You know yes. because. The research is not going to tell you everything. So tell me how you manage that.
1: Well, first of all, it was a, uh, I selected a time period that fit two criteria perfectly. One, it was one that I knew a great deal about because I taught it. And two, it's one that nobody else knows anything about. So I can get away with whatever I want. Mm-hmm. I can, you know, yeah, this castle was in Berlin. Sure it was. I mean, you know, nobody really knows. Um, <laughs> I also have, a, a very strong German heritage both sides of the family are German so it it just naturally lent itself to you know I, I know these places i'm I, I, you know I've seen this been I, I understand this um, so the world building was really rather easy because I'm using real people real battles real events, um, real locations and I've just interjected into that than my fictional characters so they're interacting with the actual holy roman emperor and these generals and um, 80 plus percent of the characters in the trilogy are authentic so it's it's a little bit historical fiction but then I've also brought um, a level of low fantasy into it as well so it's historical fantasy but also with a lot of research and non-fiction elements in it as well
0: have you ever gotten to a point that you forget yourself which is fantasy and which is fiction
1: <laughs> no but i have gotten to the point i said this to my wife the other day where i've lost track of where everybody is mm-hmm. and i have to go back and do research on my own book and then survive like, wait wait a minute where, where did I leave that general? And where's the Emperor right now? And I, and it, it's getting a little out of hand trying to because I keep introducing new characters as previous ones die off naturally or unnaturally. So every once in a while I do have to kind of take inventory of who's left, Where are they? and how close am I to getting everybody on their character arc? To get where they need to get by the end of this book, because I've got an exact, specific number of chapters. Each of the three books will be precisely sixty chapters for for a reason. So I know I have a certain limited amount of space to move everybody around.
0: Gotcha. Am I allowed to know the reason for the sixty chapters? Oh
1: ab- yeah, absolutely. It's 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 you know no no secret. It's. The the main character, the character that you meet on the first line of the first page of the first book will also be the character that you will see on the last line of the last page of the last book. And between those two moments, she undergoes a 180 degree character arc. She is in every way different from the person you first met. And each of the chapters there'll be 180 of them, represents one degree of her character arc so that by the end of 180 chapters, Vanessa is no longer remotely like the person that we had met on page one of book one.
0: Oh, interesting. Now, what inspired that? That's very calculated for you. Yeah,
1: there's something wrong with my brain. Um, I just... (laughs) You know, I, I would have made a great Nazi. I'm very OCD, <laughs> alles in Ordnung bitte, a thing. It so something about the, the just the the symmetry of that just made such perfect sense to me that it that almost came right from the beginning. And um, I, I, I think maybe I've even made that decision and then had to justify why. I'm like, oh, here's why. It's because, um, but, yeah, it's... It's because I have OCD tendencies.
0: I I have to tell you, I have conducted probably, you know, hundreds, if not thousands of author interviews. You are the first one ever, well, twofold, one that had a specific number of chapters over the course of not just one book. You know, some people say, "Eh, I want there to be 50, but an actual over, over the course of a trilogy because of a character arc. And you're you're actually the first time I've ever heard anyone say I would have made a great Nazi. So you know, <laughs> uh, there's that. Yeah,
1: well, just what well, the truth is told. <laughs>
0: you 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 just stick out from the crowd. That's why I said hundreds, if not thousands, of authors, and, yeah. and never. I don't know, know what heard. that's going
1: to do for book sales. That might.
0: <laughs> well you know among some segments it might do very well yeah
1: that's true that's true not the segment that i'm trying to reach but,
0: i understand so we'll, yes. we'll just delete yes. that one
1: right.
0: you're saying about um remembering where your characters are so i guess there's no room in your house with a giant whiteboard and post-it notes and a map of europe and none of that huh?
1: no no my my house is is dominated by my two boys every room in the house is a playroom we, we think we have a dining room, a family room, an office. In reality, we have lots of playrooms. So there's, <laughs> there's simply no place for that to exist, uh, which is why I do very little writing at home. It's always done at the local library or at Panera or Starbucks or wherever, um, because that does not exist. in my. I used to have that. I had the my fortress of solitude was my classroom when I was a full-time teacher, and that was that was mine. But now, as a part-time teacher, I'm I'm just borrowing someone else's room. So, unfortunately, I I don't have a war room to plot things out.
0: Uh, how old are these boys?
1: My youngest Caleb is five, going on sixteen, and <laughs> my oldest Jacob is eight, going on forty. Okay. <laughs>
0: i totally get that and and by the way your house will be a playroom well into their 20s you know? yes that's
1: that, that's been explained to me
0: different types of toys over time but right but you never really regain the house back
1: and you know what i'm i'm totally okay with that um everybody has told me that you know With childhood, the days are long, but the years go by quickly, and that has been so true. I can't believe they're the ages they are already, and I'm very much, I like to get on the floor and play Legos with them, and just last night before bed, Jacob and I had a massive dinosaur battle. It was herbivores versus carnivores, and uh, so I'm perfectly, I'm a little boy at heart, so I'm perfectly fine with every room being a playroom. Fantastic. Fantastic.
0: Well, I do have to ask, looking at your characters, um, and we have a little bit of a good guy, bad guy thing, and we have Catholics and Protestants. Uh, Was there a reason why you picked one side for another?
1: Um, I was was raised Catholic. Um, I'm no longer a practicing Catholic. I would be described as a Protestant now. I'm a non-denominational Christian. Um, But what I've tried to do in the book is confuse the lines that in one moment, the Catholics are the good guys and the Protestants are the bad guys. And in the very next chapter, note um, that it's all a matter of perspective because that period of history has always fascinated me. It's, you know, these wars of religion in France and the Netherlands and, and the Holy Roman Empire. And it, it part of this is just my own therapy of trying to figure out why have historically so many Christians spent so much time trying to kill each other in the name of the same God? And I still don't understand it. I don't think I ever will, but putting these two characters ground zero in that environment has, has helped me to just kind of work out some of that uh, anxiety. (laughs) that I feel about, you know, as a Christian myself, how Christians, have historically behaved towards one another.
0: I I like the way you're describing how in the book, you know, there's that saying that I'm sure you've heard a million times, write what you know. And what you just said, really so much points to writing what you know, even when one is writing about 1618 in Europe with you know these strong female protagonists another person might say well he didn't write what you you know and i love what you just said about even this religious aspect you are writing what you know and you're yes. writing what has actually been you know uh, like a thorn in your your mental side shall we say over yes. the years and i really like that you said it that it has been
1: very cathartic working out uh, a lot of this and an unintended consequence of this is is that it has massively deepened my faith in God and improved my relationship with God. And I was never one of the people who felt like God could actually speak to us directly. I never felt that before, but it has happened on multiple occasions through this process where I know he is speaking directly to me, Steve Rieger, and has gifted me with an idea or something. So um, even if nobody ever read the book, it would still have been a great endeavor for me personally, in terms of my relationship with my parents, my God, my wife. It's it, it's been phenomenal.
0: That's that's huge. I am so glad you said that because often people think, okay, a nonfiction writer gets that kind of a, but no, this is through fiction, mm-hmm. and it's it's fiction that is. Has deepened your faith, improved your relationships, helped you as a person to evolve and grow. Just as you're having your characters on a character arc, it's not just detached from you that you're writing this story about long ago and far away.
1: Correct. Well, and I've also, um, with their permission, of course, I've worked in former students. I have former students who have shown up as um, one is in a you know an enlightened nun. One has shown up as a slave. Um, I've worked my dog into it. Um, Kimber has become a very lazy horse. Um, I've worked both of my boys into it and then described their various peccadilloes. So um, I've been smart enough to keep my wife out of it and and will continue to do that. She will not appear. Um, But my parents have recently shown up and I had great fun writing about Oma and Opa um, in a way that, they don't entirely approve of but it, it it was it was still it was still um cathartic to, to to write that that scene
0: i love that and that is like i said so so pointing and telling that fiction is very very personal and you're absolutely writing what you know and i can not agree more our next author certainly is writing what he knows. Uh, Brian Vukadinovic is the author of Rogues in Black Robes, Destroying Lives and Committing Crimes with no true accountability. And uh, in this, our author exposes the severity of corruption within the highest levels of the federal judiciary in how a federal Court of Appeals judge from the United States Court of Appeals for the Seventh Circuit in Chicago. Michael S. Kahn used his influence to have a decision fixed regarding an appeal that Brian had filed against rogue police in Valparaiso, Indiana, who had tormented him for years. In Rogues in Black Robes, you will read how a former judge of the United States Court of Appeals in Chicago, Richard A. Posner, after retiring from the federal bench, decided to come clean and disclose how he allowed himself to be manipulated by Judge Kahn into throwing their decision of the appeal of the police case as a favor to Judge Kahn, even though he, Judge Posner, knew that the appellate decision should have gone in favor of Brian Bukadinovich and against the Valparaiso police. In Rogues in Black Robes, you will read how the chief judge of the United States Court of Appeals for the Seventh Circuit, Diana S. Sykes, and other members of that court, covered up their case-fixing activities. And we'll also read how the Administrative Office of the United States Court Chief Justice John Roberts and Attorney General Merrick Garland turned a blind eye to the case-fixing activities and swept the judges' nefarious acts under the rug in order that the public would not know about the degree of judicial corruption that has permeated the federal judiciary. In Rogues in Black Robes, you will read about the mechanisms that are put in place to protect corrupt judges from accountability when they breach their sworn oaths of office and even violate the laws of the United States. Our author Brian is a speaker with the All-American Speakers Bureau. In addition to being an author, he's available for speaking engagements to organizations, schools, colleges, and clubs. Please meet author of Rogues in Black Robes, Brian Vukadanovich. Thanks so much for joining me.
2: Hi, Stephanie. Uh, thank you so much for the invite. I really appreciate that.
0: Oh, my pleasure. And uh, I, before we get into the, the heavy topic of your book, How did I do? I was going to have Steve do the introduction because he could pronounce your name better than I did. Did I manage?
2: You did. Absolutely fabulous, as you (laughs) always do. Being my publisher of the book, Uh, 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 all of the things. I I
0: try. But uh, we were talking with, with Steve about books that are personal. It could not get any more personal than this book. So can you bring us back to what happened in your own words that led to this book?
2: Yes, uh, absolutely. Uh, it's a very personal thing. Uh, but it's also a very public thing as well. Uh, personal from the perspective that I went through a lot in my, uh, younger adult life, uh, battling rogue police and several false arrests that I was, uh, to make a long story short, uh, back in 1981, it all got started. Uh, the Valparaiso police were called to a, a bank in Valparaiso, and my mother and I went into the bank to do some banking business, and and uh, they just went completely crazy and and uh, grabbed me and pushed me against the wall and completely crazy and out of control. And I was trying to explain to them, the bank people were trying to explain to them that I was not the person that they were looking for. So to make a long story short, uh, rather than uh, apologize that they made a mistake, they had the wrong person. They hit me with a bogus charge to cover themselves so I go to court the judge finds me not guilty uh I file a brutality and false arrest lawsuit I win the lawsuit and then uh after that my just my life became a living hell I couldn't go to the grocery store without getting stopped by these same particular police and and then it mushroomed out to other police agencies and so forth and I had a target on my back so then at some point we had a uh we had a jury trial in uh, Hammond, Indiana, in federal court, and the judge there, James Moody, he wouldn't allow a lot of the uh, evidence that I had. I actually had a tape recording where I taped the police, where they were—I caught them on the tape where they were laughing about arresting me and uh, made some comments that were just really, really out of line, and clearly showed that that it was a bogus arrest and so forth. And the judge Moody wouldn't let me uh, admit that into the into the. Uh, trial. He wouldn't let the jury hear that tape. And then I had a police officer who was actually on the Valparaiso Police Department, John Corus was his name, uh, that that was actually one of the good guys. He was one of the good police. Uh, He was willing to come into the trial and testify about how he had heard the Valparaiso Police scheming and how they were going to falsely arrest me and brutalize me and so forth. And again, the judge, Moody, would not let me put him on the witness stand. He would not let the jury know that there was a policeman on the inside who had information about how his associate police members in that department were scheming to falsely arrest me and and brutalize me and so forth. So it just uh, so then I took that I took that into the appeal in the Seventh Circuit in Chicago, the Federal Civil uh, Circuit Court of Appeals. And then, uh, you know, I put everything in detail to them, and and they acknowledged that that uh, the tape recording was on the pretrial order. That uh, there's a lot of legalese involved, and the pretrial order controls the proceedings and so forth. But then they said, then they said, well, but yeah, it was properly listed and it wasn't objected to, and it was an error it shouldn't have happened the judge shouldn't have made that ruling but then they called it harmless error that it was harmless and that's that's the uh signal right there when the appellate courts use the word harmless error what that means is you have proved your point and the the court the appeal court is not willing to take it to the step that it needs to take it to and reverse the case well it's harmless there. It was no big deal. How could you say that not letting a, the inside policeman testify that that was harmless, that that wasn't a big deal? So then they, they uh, one of the problems in our country, many of our judges, probably the vast majority, are basically government type judges. Uh, it's very hard for the people in our country to win uh, cases against government agencies and and corporations and so forth. The judges that are appointed to the judiciary all basically come from uh, pro- a lot of them have been prosecutors, they've been city attorneys, they come from that government type sector, and very few were actually civil rights lawyers and the like before they got on there that actually understand the other side of it. So that's why when they appoint all these judges, they put them on there. Uh, they put government-friendly judges on there, and then when the person brings a case against the government, they have government judge-friendly uh, judges doing, uh, making those kinds of rulings that they made in my case. So then, to fast forward, I I became friends. Um, well, I let me back up just a hair. Uh, in in uh, March 2016, I represented myself in a in a uh, federal trial case, a jury trial. Uh, I was a teacher and uh, I lost my I lost my teaching job and the school board wouldn't meet with me and so forth. After I talked for eight years with all excellent evaluations and so forth, and they wouldn't meet with me. So then I, I filed a federal lawsuit against them. We had a five day jury trial in March 2016. I represented myself. The school corporation had a had a battery of lawyers and I beat them. The jury ruled in my favor after five after hearing five days of evidence. And awarded me significant damages, a little bit over two hundred thousand dollars. Well, it became big news, and so forth. And then Judge Posner, who who was uh, actually one of the judges who was on the panel that that wouldn't uh, reverse Moody, that affirmed the rulings by Moody by not letting uh, the uh, tape recording information and the officers testify and so forth. He was actually on the panel, and and uh, so then he called me, he contacted me, called me, emailed me, and so forth, and he told me he heard about, he read about how I won that federal trial by myself, representing myself without a lawyer, and he himself became uh, disenchanted with the judges at the Seventh Circuit at this point in time, after o- over 35 years of being on that bench there in Chicago, and he left, he retired. He made some public statements about how the judges at the Seventh Circuit in Chicago were mistreating the pro se litigants. I, and I, of course, was one of them uh, in my appeal. And he, he made some uh, really uh, bad comments about them, about how they were operating there and said, I've had enough. I'm out of here. And then he started an, uh, his own organization called the Posner Center of Justice for Pro se. And he asked me to come on board with him and help him in in that cause. Well, you know, I always had in the back of my mind, well, you know, he was one of the judges that actually ruled against me in that in that appeal against the police. But he did make those public statements about what was going on there at the Seventh Circuit and came out and, and admitted that he saw the light and so forth. He didn't like it, he said publicly. So I thought, well, you know let me let me give him a chance here and and, and we'll see. So then I thought about it and then he uh, I agreed to come on board with him and then uh, we actually became pretty good friends. He invited me several times to come up and have lunch with them and so forth and in Chicago and and we had some meetings and so forth and and uh, then he appointed me as the executive director of the Posner Center of Justice. Wow. So he gave me that that position, and we pe- became very very good friends. And then during one of our one of our uh, lunch meetings, he disclosed to me he had already publicly disclosed to the nation what was going on at the Seventh Circuit with the judges uh, their mistreatments of the pro se's and so forth. And then he disclosed to me privately that what this judge, Michael Caney, did in in approaching him because Judge Posner was actually on the panel. And as a favor to Judge Caney, he persuaded Judge Posner to actually fix the decision, to throw the decision in my case. So to come clean, he disclosed it to me. He apologized for it. Asked for my forgiveness. I gave it to him. Uh, And then it was just, it was very disheartening. But he did, after 35 years, publicly admit that what was going on at the Seventh Circuit with the judges was wrong. And he, he disclosed it to me, what happened in my case. So then I filed a judicial misconduct complaint against Caney with an affidavit, and I stated in the affidavit that Judge Posner disclosed to me that that uh, Caney had him, Judge Posner, fixed the decision in the appeal and so forth. And, and then it was up to the Seventh Circuit to investigate that and do something about it. So then um, what happened was and I put it all in great detail. So then, the chief judge of the Seventh Circuit, her name is Diane Sykes, in September 2021, she filed an order dismissing the judicial misconduct complaint, stating that, well, uh, it was it happened a long time ago, and and, uh, and then she actually put in the order, and why didn't why didn't, uh, didn't uh, Vukadinovich uh, uh bring this to our attention long before that he did well first of all yes it happened a long time ago but it was only disclosed to me recently and there is no statute of limitations for these types of complaints anyway and then to, to show how corrupt the courts operate she stated in the order well People move and their addresses are unknown. People <laughs> die. And, well, first of all, Kaney was still a member of the Seventh Circuit when she wrote that order. He had an office probably right down the hallway from hers, so he wasn't dead at the time, and she certainly knew how to contact him. He was right there with her in the Seventh Circuit at the time. Judge Posner... <laughs> While he was retired at that point in time, just a little bit previous to that, he lives, lived in Chicago. She could have easily, she was with him on for years on the bench. She could have easily have called him and said, Hey, Judge Posner, uh, we've received this misconduct complaint against Caney, stating that you disclosed to Brian Bogdanovich that you agreed to fix the decision and that appeal against the Valparaiso police as a favor to Caney but she didn't contact him. So that pretty much tells the story. Let's just whitewash this thing and not get, and by the way, Caney did not deny on the record that he had Post, Judge Posner fix the, the decision and appeal. So that also was very strange. The fact that she did not get a denial from Caney, and the fact that the Chief Judge Sykes did not contact Judge Posner, he could have confirmed it, he could have denied it, but she chose, well, it's for me to issue this order and cut Caney loose, I can't get a statement from Judge Posner. Because if Judge Posner verifies that Caney persuaded him to fix the decision, then we're in big trouble here. So that's how they operate there. So then I I, uh, followed the protocol. I filed a a review with the Seventh Circuit of it. Of course, they uh, just rubber stamped uh, Sykes' order. And then I, uh, following protocol, I filed uh, a petition with the Judicial Conference of the United States in Washington, D.C., and I reported to them in great detail what happened. And so they have an obligation to to, uh, review the matter and then take appropriate steps. So, And by the way, uh, I have already, when I filed the uh, misconduct complaint, I asked the Seventh Circuit, the chief judge in my uh, complaint, to ask the chief justice of the United States, John Roberts, to transfer the complaint to another circuit which is which is allowable under the rules, and I cited the rule, but Sykes chose not to. We can't transfer this out of our circuit, because if it gets into another circuit, and they're actually going to be honest and proceed with integrity, we're going to be in big trouble here, so we're going to keep this in-house here, so we can cover this thing up. So, but she didn't even mention anything about that in her order, where, where I asked for the uh, issue to be transferred to another circuit. So I pointed uh, all of that out to the Judicial Conference of the United States. So I don't hear anything back from them at all. So I contact them on the website asking for what the status is of the petition. They don't respond back and so forth. So then I wrote a letter to Chief Justice John Roberts. I wrote a letter to the Attorney General of the, of the United States, Merrick Garland. I reported all this to them. Of course, nothing from them either. So my petition is still sitting there uh, after a year's time and with no action on it. They do not want the public, the judicial hierarchy in the United States does not want the public to know how corrupt the federal judiciary is. And make no mistake about it. It's very corrupt. I contacted my st- my senator in Indiana. His name is Todd Young. I asked him to check into. Uh, the status of my petition with the judicial conference with the administrative office of the United States courts. And he told me that he contacted him and he let me know what he heard when he heard something. So a lot of time goes by. I ask him, what's the status? Well, we haven't heard anything back from him. So I kept getting that back from his office. So I asked him, the senator, I would like to see a copy of the letter that you sent them. Mm-hmm. Now, I think that's a very reasonable request. I'm the constituent; it involves me. Let me see the letter that you said you wrote on my behalf, and he wouldn't—he wouldn't provide me with a copy of it. So I started thinking, you know what? I don't think he wrote that letter, because he would have wanted me to see that letter. So then I contacted uh, the chair of the Senate Judiciary Committee, Dick Durbin who loves to appear in front of TV cameras and 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 spew out all kinds of nonsense, political nonsense all over the place. But when it comes down to actually digging into an issue of judicial corruption, he runs and hides in the nearest corner that he could find. So then I wrote, that's where, the, that's where it's at right now. It, my petition is just sitting there. Uh, it's a ticking time bomb there, and they know it. They do not want the country to know that a federal court of appeals judge who was actually on the panel in the decision disclosed that the decision was fixed at the Seventh Circuit, that another judge, Michael Caney, had the decision fixed, and they do not want the country to know that. Otherwise, they would have been would have dealt with it. Thanks. So I decided to write this book, yeah. and and I'm gonna let the country know, the world actually. What's going on in the in the American judiciary? You know, not too long ago, Reuters Reuters did a poll. A Gall- Reuters reported on a Gallup poll. Uh, Gallup took a poll not too long ago, and and the people responded. Seventy five percent of the country doesn't trust the judiciary, the federal judiciary. Only twenty five percent of the country, a quarter of the country. Has confidence in the federal judiciary. Well, there's a reason for that, and a lot of it is just what I what I said. There, it's it's corrupt, and they hold everything in secret. They, you know, nobody is supposed to know anything, and they operate behind closed doors, and they're getting away with it. That's why I wrote the book. We need changes in this country,
0: and and when and such. I mean, you're speaking, and and I'm looking at Steve's face and my face, and I'm thinking to myself oh my gosh, a mistaken identity, something that should have just been, oops, sorry about that, has, has snowballed into this unbelievable, life-changing, uh, unreal. Uh, Brian, I have to ask you though, before all this started, but before the, this first event, because you speak and, and, and so eloquently and, and, and boy, legal terms just roll off right your tongue like it. Were you, uh, you know, educated in the legal system? Was this all by yourself? Have you? But I mean, goodness, I bet there are federal judges that don't know what you know and uh, and whatnot. Was this beforehand or was this because you had to? Uh,
2: I'm really glad you asked that question, Stephanie. I, I really am. Uh, I you know, I was a teacher and a basketball coach. Basketball's a big deal in Indiana. That's all I ever wanted to do in my life. I went to college, got my teaching degree, became a teacher and a basketball coach. That's all I ever wanted to do. And then uh, and then after after that uh, situation happened in the bank with my mom with the with the uh, false arrest, mistaken identity, then after that happened, uh, you know, I I was never uh, never arrested uh, before before that. And then guess what from that point on from september 1981 after that false arrest i was arrested 10 times can you believe that it's just almost unbelievable i went from never never being arrested to to becoming a teacher and a basketball coach and then after a bogus false arrest then i'm arrested 10 times pure retaliation And then when I brought it into federal court, the judge, the federal judge, uh, Moody, wouldn't allow the evidence to come in, but that's what's happening in the courts. So what happened was, uh, because of all these other false arrests that filed, and by the way, I had, you know, we could do another show on all the evidence I had. The police have been writing letters about me to other prosecutors, other police agencies, you know, hey, uh, let me know if we can help help in any way. We we need to get Vukadinovich. In a nutshell, the letter stated, which they denied in some of the court proceedings. And then uh, ultimately the cases would get dismissed, the criminal cases against me. But I would have to go through all of that stuff. So then what happened was at the beginning, uh, I didn't know how the law operated and so forth. I had to hire lawyers. I had to hire a lawyer to defend me in the criminal cases early on. And then, uh, as we all know, uh, lawyers are all about money and it took a lot of money and then all of a sudden these criminal cases started stacking up against me, one after another after another. At one point, I had five separate case, not charges, cases, five separate cases filed against me. So I walked and then and then I asked my lawyer at the time, hey, uh, you know, we got to do something about these cases. Well, you know, I'm working on it, I'm working on it, and so forth. So then I thought to myself, you know what? I don't know if I can trust this lawyer. So I went to the law library and I did some research on my own and i found a law in indiana that stated that after a certain amount of time after a person is arrested if that person is not brought to trial and i believe i believe it was it was either 90 days or 180 days one or the other i believe that if the person is not brought to trial within that time period that the charges must be dismissed against that person it's basically a speedy trial rule i'm mm-hmm. sure all the states have one uh, in, in a different form one way or another. So then, well, my arrests were, you know, a couple of, you know, a couple of them were like two and three years old. They just sat there. That, that was part of the plan. The police, let's get all these charges filed against him. He'll get fired from his teaching jobs. His life will be a holy, holy hell for him and so forth. So that was the game that was being played. So then after I, after I found out about that, about that rule in Indiana, I went to my, I, I went to my lawyer Walked into his office, walked in, and I, and I said, listen, I said, I have a question for you. I, I said, you know, I've got all these pending charges against me, and you haven't done anything to, to get them dismissed, and, and I want you to answer a question for me, a simple question. I did some research, and I learned that there's a law in Indiana that after a certain period of time, that the, if the person isn't brought to prosecution, that the charges must be dismissed after a certain point in time, and my and all of these charges have well past that time period. Uh, so am I correct in in my interpretation of that rule? Should these charges be dismissed then, according to the rule? And he said to me, these were his exact words. Well, it's not that easy. <laughs> I, I said, I did not ask you if it was easy. I asked you if I was correct, if, if that's what the rule was, as I stated it, well, it's not that easy. So I said to him, I gave him a directive. He's my lawyer. I'm the client. I'm paying him. I gave him a directive. I told him, you will now file immediately motions to dismiss under that, under that rule, to dismiss all of these cases against me. And I said, are you going to do that? And he said, Well, it's not that easy. We had that talk again. So I said, Look, here's the deal. I said, if by tomorrow, by the end of the business day, if you do not file the motions to dis- dismiss based on those on that rule, then I will file the motions on my own. And his I'll never forget his exact words to me. You're not filing a damn thing. Those were his exact words to me. So I said back to him, Well you're fired. You are no longer my lawyer. You're fired. So I went home. My brother asked me how my meeting went with the lawyer. And I told him what, what I told, what I just told you, I fired him and I was going to represent myself. So I got on my old Smith Corona typewriter. If anybody remembers what typewriters are back yeah, in those days, they weren't computers. He's yeah. laughing back there. He knows what no, I'm I, ha- about. I still have mine. <laughs> I have my, I still have my Smith Corona that I had in college. It's still like brand new. So I typed up separately. I had to do each one separately because it's not like you can uh, do it on a like on a word processor. I file it the very next day in each of those cases, and guess what? The judge dismisses every one (laughs) of the cases against me. Now, what does that say? I'm paying a lawyer. He should be telling me what that rule is. He should be filing those motions. He's just collecting money and making money off of this. And the the police love it. They know it gives them a license. Well, we can do whatever we want. That's this little game that goes on with lawyers and and police departments and so forth. So from that point on, I said, that's it. I'm done with lawyers. I'm just going to do this myself. So I went and bought myself a, a law dictionary. I started out learning legal terms and so forth, spent a lot of time at the law library, learned how to research case laws and so forth, went to some trials, watched some trials, whenever I heard of a big trial, I would go to Chicago and watch trials in Chicago, criminal trials and civil trials and so forth. So then, you know, I got a little bit more knowledgeable about things and so forth and just from that point on, I just represent myself in federal court, state court, whatever. So, Brian,
1: you know um, what this I apologize for interrupting, Brian, but you know what this sounds like? It sounds like the experiences of Joseph K. in Franz Kafka's The Trial. I mean, the, the, this the, the, this is the kind of stuff that's supposed to happen in dystopian nightmare vision of the future Orwellian novels, not...
0: Real life in Indiana. Yeah,
1: yeah. not yeah. in Indiana, Not not in a democratic republic.
0: Yeah, and and wow. you know what you're saying and, and everything that you've experienced. So incredibly eye-opening. And like I said at the beginning, terrifying that I'm going through my merry little life and I am just one, you know, mistaken I did one being in the wrong place at the wrong time, shall we say. Uh, to this and and then i have to hire you brian because really i don't think i could read all those law books <laughs> i'm sure there are plenty of people lining up to hire you for things at this point because of what you know
2: definitely and, uh, honest to god truth uh um i after I, after i won that federal trial and then i came on board with uh posner's uh center of justice and so forth honest to god truth I had to unplug. I have a landline. I don't have a cell cell phone. As you know, I'm the only person on the planet, I think. Uh, I use a landline. And honest to God truth, I had to unplug my landline phone for three weeks. It was constantly ringing day and night. We heard about how you won your trial. (laughs) We wonder if you would maybe give us some advice, some tips, you know, and so forth. And I would, you know, I would, those messages would all be on my machine and so forth. I used to talk to a lot of people, but it got to the point where I couldn't even, I couldn't get any sleep because the phone would be ringing all the time. So then I would tell my friends, my friends would tell me, Hey, something's wrong with your phone. We can't, you know, I said, no, I had to unplug it. You know, if you need to call, if you need to talk to me, send me an email and then I'll plug the phone. in." it got that bad. There's a lot of people in the country that, that need help and they can't afford lawyers and you know good people around the country you know just because a person uh is involved in some type of litigation in one way or another whether it's civil or criminal that doesn't mean that person's a bad person sometimes it's the people on the other end of that that are causing those things that's why we have courts they're supposed to sort all that all that stuff out and if you don't have a lawyer and and steve just uh uh, said in our democratic society well our so-called democratic society i say because i wonder how democratic of a society it is when you when it's when it comprises a, a judiciary that is just basically totally indifferent to people's rights under the law and pro and and just so pro friendly to corporations and government agencies that it's actually it's it's sickening it's pathetic it's, I mean, it sounds
1: like a martin scorsese film it's just <laughs>
0: absolutely Absolutely. And, and you know, we're, we're hoping there's some movie uh directors out there who want to take this document. Oh, I can and- totally
1: see Robert De Niro playing Brian in the movie. Absolutely. What?
0: And Brian, I'm so delighted um, that you have uh, signed on, that you are with the American Speakers Bureau, because like you said, there are so many people who need to hear this. And I'd love as a publisher to think that everyone's gonna read the book from cover to cover. But I'm so glad you're also out there speaking because you can't possibly field all the phone calls. I'm sure that when this when this episode airs, that there'll be people saying, oh gosh, something similar happened to me. And I got stuck with X, Y, and Z. And I bet there's a million stories out there. And it's just absolutely terrifying to think about.
2: Absolutely. I, I spoke, I was invited to speak. Uh, uh, to the law students at Yale law school at Yale about this after I won the trial. And by the way, uh, I have been contacted by several screenwriters already, uh, about, uh, the possibility of a movie here. So, you know, I'm working on that part of things as we speak here. And I'm sure that once, uh, my new, my new book comes out here after the great job you've been doing with me and, and helping me get it published and so forth that, uh, I'm pretty confident that there will be a movie, and and a, a movie needs movies. to be made so yeah. people can understand uh, the significance of this problem, and it's very significant.
0: And and it's not a problem that just happened to you. I am sure that there are plenty of people who, in all walks of life, who have gone down some. Oh, what what on earth? What dystopian novel, as you said, Steve? Did I did I wake up in? In the middle of all this, and and none are nearly as uh, learned as you are to be able to follow through. They just kind of throw in the towel, and and move or change their name or you yeah. know, you know, do whatever it is that they need to do to get on with their lives because they can't even possibly fathom. And how many of them are actually sitting in jail, which is really truly terrifying. You know, every day you hear about uh, how mistaken identity has actually led to. A life sentence. Uh, I just saw in the news somebody who was in for you know 17 years because of a fire in her home and the arson inspector decided that she said it and her two-year-old was killed. She spent 17 years in jail doing what you did which is researching and learning and understanding the law so that she could fight for herself to get out.
1: Oh. It's
0: Like you said it is just such an incredible we we
1: just had a case here in ohio where a man was released off death row he'd been on death row for 30 years because the prosecutors withheld evidence they hid evidence exculpatory evidence um, and it's just now come to light 30 years later and he's you know you you can't replace three decades of your life No, no
0: you can't or can you
2: brian well, Steve, I, I I was just getting ready to talk. I was going to say something about that case. I know about that case where that person spent thirty years of his life in jail uh, there in Ohio. I was just getting ready to talk about that. And and let me let me add this. Uh, as Steve said, the prosecutor's withheld evidence in that case. So let me let me uh, throw this out there. I feel I think there should be uh, an eye for an eye law. You know, we have a lot of people that and Stephanie talked about 17 years. Steve just mentioned 30 years. There's a lot of them with a lot of years, plenty of people around the country that have, that have been falsely prosecuted and, and, and convicted based on uh, withheld evidence and tainted evidence. So I feel that there should be an eye for an eye law. I feel that if a person such as the person in Ohio spent 30 years of his life, well, then the prosecutor who withheld the evidence, he should have to spend 30 years of his life in Certainly, jail
0: there absolutely yeah. has to be accountability and and the fact that you try to you know bring a case about that now you have evidence that there was this issue and it's being swept under the rug just points to the fact that there is zero accountability for these kinds of things and and I you know as I said I can't I can't thank you enough for enlightening me but I'm sure that there are just as many people who are going to either hear you speak, pick up your book, watch you here and say, oh my gosh, that's me also. And uh, it's so important and so empowering for people to know that you're here and that you had the ability to not only represent yourself, but also to write a book because you both know, because you write books, it ain't easy to write a book. And a lot of people who are in your similar shoes are not nearly as powerful as you have made yourself to be over these years. And it's really a gift that you're giving, not just to you in your own case, but to all of those voices who can't be heard themselves. It's a real gift that you're giving them. So thank, thank you. Thank you, Brian.
2: Thanks, Steve. Thanks, Stephanie. I appreciate that coming from both of you. Thank you. It means you know, a lot to so, me.
0: So important. You know, uh, Steve mentioned with his own book how much of a transformation in his own life he has gone through in writing, and that, regardless of what happens, he wants one person to feel that same. And, and I know that that happens. You know, we'll never know who that person is, but we know that that happens. And and you know, Brian. Similarly, I have no doubt that somebody, hopefully many somebody's, and hopefully many somebody's in power will read this and and realize what is between those pages. Because writing is just such a powerful thing, whether it's fiction and transformational or whether it's nonfiction and it's informational. It's just so important that your books are out there and touching people, both of you. It's just a huge gift. You know, people think you write and you're all alone and it's, it's kind of almost a selfish act that you're writing and it's for you. No, you're writing for other people. And that is just just so huge. Uh, I do want to ask the two of you before we, we sign off about who you want to read your book. I always say I want everybody to read your book. But if you could describe for us, you know, so that people who are listening say, oh, that's me, or I know somebody, or I want to buy that book for somebody right now. Uh, Steve, can you tell us a little bit about your uh, target reader so that I can hear that and say, oh, my gosh. That's that's my my nephew, my husband. Who can I buy this for today? Well,
1: it's 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 funny you ask that question because I've had um, traditional publishers of fantasy tell me that the book was too historical and scriptural, mm. and yet I've had traditional publishers of Christian works say that it's too fantastic. And um, so my my target audience is a is a very narrow group of two kinds of people. Um, people who falsely believe that history is boring, because it it absolutely is not. Um, and at, at the risk of of sounding too evangelical, um, my other target audience is is non-believers, people who maybe have never read anything from the Old Testament or the New Testament and will pick this up and, and start to ask questions like, is that true? Is um, Was the ministry of Jesus really about that and did this really happen? And um, so I, I guess my target audience is people who will ask questions. Uh, I tell my students all the time, my number one commandment to my students is always question authority. And my my dream demographic were people who would do that, who would question my own writing, is is this true? Is this false? But would also question why did that happen in the 17th century? Or why is that still happening even today?
0: Yeah, no, I, I'm so glad you you mentioned that because on the surface, your book is also for the demographic of people who love history and want to read about all these people. So, and then that demographic, I was listening to you speak saying, oh, that's my husband. I'm going to let me let me grab this book for him. He knows all about that error. He actually teaches church history. This will be an awful lot of fun. Hey,
1: great. So,
0: absolutely. So I'm, I'm delighted you hit that other demographic as well, because the first one that I described was almost obvious.
1: Right.
0: And and you mentioned the one that maybe, oh, okay, I didn't think about that person, too. Awesome. Right. That, that's exactly what I want to hear from. And Brian, how about you? Who should be getting a copy of Rogues in Black Robes today?
2: Well, honestly, I don't necessarily have a target audience, per se, and I believe truly and honestly that everybody should read the book. The reason I say that is, is everything that I wrote about involves everybody in the country. Sure. People are taxpayers. Um uh, They're citizens of the country. They go shopping. They don't want to be falsely arrested. And when something goes wrong, they want to have enough confidence that the right thing is going to happen in the courts and the right thing is not happening in the courts due to the corruption that's going on. And all people, whether they've ever been involved in any litigation or not been involved in litigation, as a taxpayer, you're funding the courts, whether you've never even said set foot in a courthouse you need to understand what's going on uh kids in school are taught we have a constitution and so forth and but yet when uh when something happens in your life sometimes that constitution isn't being followed by the judges so you know in a way you get brainwashed a little bit in school you know they don't tell you the reality they don't tell you in school we have a constitution we also have corrupt judges who don't want to follow the constitution and so forth so my book touches on on all of these aspects of life and the only way the reason i say everybody should read it is because the only way that we're going to affect change in this country is for for the country to get behind the concept of of judicial fairness we demand judicial fairness in this country. And the people need to contact their elected representatives and so forth, uh, court administrators, when they find things out, such as what what I'm writing about here, what happened to me, and demand that we have change. The the members of the Senate Judiciary Committee actually have power where they can actually bring those judges in and, and investigate them and actually take steps to even have them impeached or disciplined in some way. So if the if the Senate Judiciary members receive a lot of uh, information from the public at large, then we can affect change. That's why I'm hoping that you know a lot of people will read it and 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 say to themselves, you know what? we have a problem here and we need to do something about it. So I don't really have a targeted audience. It, it, it could be for anybody who cares about fairness in our country
0: makes sense to me and let's hope that they and or watch the movie because that's what we're hoping for also well for both of you you've been amazing and i'm so excited to get to meet you and mostly to get to share your books with our audience so thanks for joining me today between the covers
1: thank you